welcome. Welcome to Salem. This is the Halloween capital of the world. And this is the second ever live podcast of the Faculty of Horror. We're super proud of that. So, uh, it is my privilege to, uh, you know, let you all know that Alex West and Andrea Supasati are in the house. Let's hear it for them. So, class is officially in session. Put your hands together for the Faculty of Horror. everyone, everyone. and uh, (laughs) welcome back. Uh, We are podcasting from the horrid halls of Cinema Salem, and I'm Alex West with Andrea Subasati, and we're here to talk a little bit about a film, a film that you guys have just seen, uh, Ty West's House of the Devil. What'd you guys think? Did you guys like it? (laughs) You, You having fun there? No. Okay, well, now you talk and I'll open. Yes, okay. Um, So, yeah, I mean, uh, we're going to, we're recording a live show. If you'll remember, if you were around last year, we did this, and then we released it as, like, a bonus episode later in the year. Okay, so it's not just me. (laughs) How many graduate degrees do you need to open? We're at the bunghole, and we're like, we got to make sure to get a twist hot so that this doesn't happen. Yeah. That took me a second. It's late. <laughs> anyway, what I'm trying to say is we are going to release this recording as our October episode. So you guys are all part of that. Welcome to our October episode on House of the Devil. All right. Oh, jeez. Okay. Putting your notes all over my notes. Okay, yeah. So, so what's up, guys? Um... <laughs> If you listen to our show regularly, maybe you heard that um, the first time I saw this movie uh, was uh, was a bad date. Well, it was a good date with a guy who turned out to be a bad guy. And uh, yeah, so if you're listening to this, Lewis, I'm talking about you. You suck. (laughs) Shit. And if you know Lewis, tell him that I'm talking shit over the airwaves to 30,000 people. But... um, but yeah, so the first time I saw it, you know, I wasn't entirely paying attention. I wasn't super into it. And I thought I was missing something because everybody seems to love this film, love, love, love this film. So it's a good opportunity to come back to it. And, uh, and yeah, I have some thoughts. Uh, so I'm one of those people who really, really loves, loves this movie. Um, I'd say it's probably like a top 10 horror film for me. Um, I, I stan this horror film. Um, <laughs> And, and for me, I watched it, uh, I got it on a recommendation from one of like the few remaining video stores in Toronto. I watched it on my own. And I think it felt really refreshing because this, though this came out in 2009, The House of the Devil, um, I saw it probably like 2011, 2012, I want to say. And it was so different from anything I had been seeing at that point. Like, we were well into Saw. It was like torture porn. I'd been getting into New French Extremity, which I was loving, but it was so different. There was so much restraint to House of the Devil. And then it, I love a slow burn. Like, we've talked about this on this show. I love a slow burn. So this really, it speaks to that. And I think for me, and I think for you, if it works for you, it's um, a really restrained, interesting film. Yeah, okay. I can agree with that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she doesn't agree. That date was really I agree bad. that it's a slow... It's slow. <laughs> it's a slow burn without the burn. Well, and we should talk a little bit about um, the director, Ty West, who, again, I am not related to. Um, <laughs> And he did a couple things before House of the Devil, and he did a couple things after House of the Devil. Um, I haven't seen his earlier work. Have you? No, I haven't. I was just gonna. I was just thinking. I don't have a very good read on him. You know, like I'm the editor of a horror movie magazine, and I just I've only seen a handful of his output. I've seen I've seen The Sacrament. Uh, I've seen a couple of episodes of that Exorcist TV show, but I, I don't have a very good read on Taiwan on what he's about and what he's like. 
Um, so I've seen, um, after House of the Devil, I went and I sought out the innkeepers, which I could not get into. I, I wanted those two people to die. I wanted them to die so badly. And that's not a place you want to be with, like, the heroes of your horror film. Uh, and then the sacrament, I was like, oh, so it's Jonestown. It's still Jonestown. Great. Vice journalist. Okay. So uh, for me, House of the Devil, until he does something different, is an anomaly. It's, it's kind of his most focused, ambitious uh, effort, uh, which I find to be really effective. And the others, again, this is just my opinion, I, I don't find them to resonate as much with the kind of stuff that I like out of a film. Um, and, and reading these interviews with him when he was talking about House of the Devil or The Innkeepers, he kind of seems like a dick. <laughs> He, he seems like a bro. Like he seems like, like he genuinely him. loves film, yes. and I think he grew up watching film in like the bombastic '80s. And I think uh, I, I think he knows his stuff. But I, I think he's the kind of filmmaker who he doesn't have a whole lot to say, but he says it anyway. And <laughs> th there's room in the genre for that. This film in particular. Uh, there's a lot to unpack. There's a lot that we're going to talk about. Uh, we had uh, we had a little tete-a-tete -tete earlier to talk about the things that we're going to talk about. I would rather talk about this film than watch it. So, Andrea, why don't you talk about this film? All right. It's well, a synopsis. You know, it, this is an episode that we're putting out, and I know you just saw this film, but for those of you who aren't paying attention, uh, <laughs> it, it, it begins with a placard. Placard. During the 1980s, 70% of Americans believed in the existence of abusive satanic cults, and another 30% rationalized the lack of evidence to government cover-ups. So the film is college sophomore Samantha just rented a new apartment to get out of her dorm, but she needs cash fast. She takes on a babysitting gig advertised on campus, even though Mr. Ullman, who placed the ad, seems strange, and Samantha's friend Megan is very concerned about him. Megan drives her to the remote mansion, and Ullman reveals that it's not actually a babysitting gig, but an evening of looking after his elderly mother while he and his wife attend an event to observe the lunar eclipse. These sentences are so big and fat, and God, the editor in me right now is just cringing. I'll, I'll clean it up in post. Samantha agrees in spite of Megan's apprehensions, and Megan gets murdered by a stranger on her way back to town. Samantha tries to eat a pizza she ordered, but it tastes strange, and she doesn't finish it. That's what I'm talking about. I hate that that's a salient plot point. You know what, Andrea? It doesn't help when you speak them in that tone. What tone is that? <laughs> and she eats a pizza. And she doesn't funny. like it. It tastes icky. <laughs> she passes out, but not before finding a dead family in an upstairs bedroom. What? <laughs> Faculty of Horror is filmed in front of a live studio audience. There isn't usually a laugh track when we're doing this. She wakes up tied down to an elaborate pentacle with the robed Ullman family encircling her. Ullman's mother emerges as a hideous witch creature thing who draws symbols on Samantha. That's, that's what fucking happens. <laughs> Samantha escapes and manages to kill Mrs. Ullman and the stranger who killed Megan revealed to be Ullman's son, Victor. As her stomach begins to discolor, she flees to a nearby cemetery where Mr. Ullman tells her she's too late. She shoots herself in the head, but we see that she survives, and a nurse reveals that she is, in fact, pregnant. Yeah, that's all right, you guys. Anything? Yeah, right? Um, so <laughs> let's talk about why this plot sounds so strange. Um, now, House of the Devil and uh, the director, editor, writer, Ty West, uh, they, he comes out of kind of this school of independent filmmaking. Um, the general umbrella of it is called Mumblecore. Um, and Mumblecore kind of came about uh, in the early 2000s. Um, I believe the first film that is kind of coined or termed under this, um, under this phrase is Hannah Takes the Stairs. Um, and then there are people like Joe Swanberg and um, the Duplass brothers and people like that who are basically making these independent American films. And um, they're known for really naturalist settings and naturalist dialogues where behavior uh, will drive and indicate uh, plot and character rather than plot and character informing anything else. Um, so we're really reliant on behavioral aspects of people to inform what we know. Now there is another kind of sub-movement under Mumblecore called Mumble Gore. Um, that is, of course, mumblecore-esque films, which are uh, horror films. And so a lot of the ones kind of you can see under that umbrella are films like, obviously, House of the Devil, uh, VHS, You're Next, and Creep. And I guess Creep 2 as well. Um, so they're, 
Yeah, they're the kind of films you either like or you don't like. And there's some mumble gore films I really like and some I don't. And uh, it's really, I think like these films are really based on the personalities of the people you're watching. And if you get into them and if you like them, uh, then I think they're a really fun ride to get on. But if you don't, I think it's like, get me, get me out of this. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think the first time I heard the term mumblecore applied to a film was applied to Diablo Cody's Juno uh, which I quite liked. That was the first time I heard it, and I was like, "That they don't mumble. I don't understand." But uh, but I, I quite liked that film, and I, I I'm a writer. I like dialogue. I like a lot of dialogue, and, uh, and you know, the trademark of mumblecore, as Alex was just saying, is you know, these are lower budget films. Uh, they, they don't necessarily have a lot to say, but that's kind of the point. Uh, they say it anyway, and again, that's kind of when Hollywood is so artificial and contrived to see these like low budget indie flicks that are going for realism. At least they're trying for realism. Well, I mean, it's like the antithesis of a mumblecore film would be like Forrest Gump, like an ordinary man who does the most extraordinary things. And mumblecore and mumblegore is about making the extraordinary seem quite ordinary, mm-hmm. um, which I think fits in very well to uh, the time period that this film is set in because this film is so heavily indebted to the 1980s and the politics and the thoughts of the time. Yep. That's, that's your setup. Oh, that's my setup to uh, take a sip, but I'm going to do this. Yeah. These glasses are huge. It's weird to sip wine out of I'm such a giant glass. I'm it all over myself. Okay. So, yeah. Um, so, like, the obvious big takeaway about this film, this film is about the satanic panic of the 1980s. This film is situated in the satanic panic of the 1980s. The placard that I mentioned. Why am I saying it like that? Why? Is, is that, that how you say it? talked about Jean-Luc Picard? I think so. <laughs> Because we all say it placard. Do you say placard? You might also say title card. <laughs> so the Jean-Luc placard situates you right in the universe of this film because like, it opens kind of like the way Texas Chainsaw Massacre does. It sets you up right in there. These are true events. And we know that it's not. But we also know that back in the 80s, people believed that it was. People believed that that's exactly the kind of shit that was going on. So that was some scary stuff. Now... To talk about Satanic Panic, I actually, uh, I drew from two sources I had. Uh, One was a book called, sorry about that, uh, Here's to My Sweet Satan, How the Occult Haunted Music, Movies, and Pop Culture from 1966 to 1980. And what was great about this book is that it traced Satanic Panic back to the 60s. And that's really where all the uh, moving pieces fell into place that enabled all this to happen in the 80s later. So back in the 60s... um, The author isolates a moment in cultural history uh, in 1966, which was a cover of Time magazine that was just black. You guys know the one I'm talking about? It's just a black cover that says, Is God Dead? Rosemary's Baby. It's in Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, yeah, thank you. so yeah, that, uh, that cover of Time magazine blew everyone's wheels. Very, very controversial. But it was tapping into the fact that people were taking less comfort in traditional Christian norms at the time. And there was many reasons for that. And so a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life, including the affluent, including the educated, were uh, turning to the arcane and the occult. And when I say occult, I mean like Latin for covered and hidden, like the literal meaning of occult, which is just to say you know, kind of buried in ancient history, buried by Christianity, either intentionally or unintentionally. And so so in the 60s, there was a very pervasive sense of nihilism. You've heard us talk about this before, assuming you listen to the podcast. Uh, World One and Two, the Cold War, the JFK assassination, there was political things going on that were making people very uneasy. Uh, and even in the art world, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, like everybody was... Uh, was a little bit uncomfortable. And so, you know, as a result, really innocent stuff in pop culture was emerging that dealt with the arcane and the occult. And I'm talking about like Ouija boards, D&D, Bigfoot, crystals, yoga, tarot. Like these weren't like goths practicing stuff like that. This was, it was really commonplace. Uh, meditation, marijuana, LSD, feminism, Stuff that suggested another way of thinking, another plane of existence that was kind of contrary to the mainstream Christianity. And like, like I said, even among the higher class and the educated, science and space travel were booming and people were more interested in understanding the natural world through these means than what the Bible had to say about them. 
And then, so when you get to the 1980s, and this is, again, where the film is situated, and you're dealing with 1980s satanic panic. Now, um, to understand it, it's basically just a belief or a notion that anyone could or can be worshiping the devil and practicing ritualistic abuse. Um, this really came into a mainstream kind of tactical, uh, tactile way in um, the McMartin preschool case. And uh, this was a case where... Um, uh, they, the McMartin family were running a preschool and, and these kids were kind of saying weird things and then they were coerced into saying even weirder things and then it was believed that, oh shit, they're a satanic cult and they're abusing these children. And it's actually uh, up until that point, so the um, investigation on this went from 1984 to 1987 and court case was from, from 1987 to 1990 and it was uh, to that point the most expensive trial ever conducted in America. Um, and there were zero convictions, but it was still like nothing was kind of proven or disproven. Um, and so that kind of already created a nationalistic sensation. Um, it, we were kind of at the dawn of the 24-hour news cycle. We're in this really weird place where people are wanting to believe something. So this was something really easy to grasp onto. And, um, you know, so as Andrew was saying, this kind of led into uh, fingers being pointed at heavy metal, at horror movies, at role-playing games, um, at Saturday morning cartoons, at toys marketed to children. Like, the devil was everywhere. And the devil was coming to get you and the people you cared about. So you better fucking watch your back. Um, and this became really mainstreamified with uh, specials um, by Oprah and Geraldo. And the Geraldo one in particular is very strange. You can watch the whole thing on YouTube. It's an hour and a half. And when Ozzy Osbourne is the most sober person <laughs> on that telecast, you, you wonder, you just wonder. Um, and as Andrea was saying, a lot of this stuff, um, it kind of, it, it deals with the decades previous. We're always indebted to our history. I truly believe that. And so there was this notion that like the space race, science, all of this stuff hadn't really panned out. Like, sure, we went to the moon, Stanley Kubrick, but <laughs> what did that mean? What did it mean? It didn't mean anything. And I think, you know, the cultural paranoia that Andrew is talking about was this real fear that what if it doesn't mean anything? Oh, what yeah. if, what it if didn't this help. is all just meaningless? Sure. It didn't help that the 70s, you know, gave us a bunch of serial killers and a bunch of cults and a bunch of like Charles Manson. Like you can't understand that. Religion can't explain that, and neither can science, frankly. And so people were very nervous. And then also when we're talking about the 80s, we have to talk about how women were entering the workforce, and that's married moms, and that's single moms. So there was a lot of kids up to no good, the latchkey kids generation, who just had all the time in the world on their hands, and they didn't have the internet yet, but they were nice and cozy in suburbia, and so they got up to heavy metal. They discovered these things, and their parents didn't know about it, which definitely created a huge anxiety between the generations. We don't know what our kids are up to, but it's probably Satan. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, and in the 1980s, you also had a very conservative president, um, Ronald Reagan, and Ronald Reagan was um, really brought to power by this force called the Moral Majority, which was led by Jerry Falwell, and it's this very kind of sinister, um, conservative, like, uh, fuck Roe v. Wade, uh, we, we, I don't know, they're just weird and gross, uh, <laughs> and I don't want to waste any more time on them, but they were awful. And uh, they kind of were able to play into this thing by saying, you know what, don't ever forget, God loves you and God is good and Jesus is good and they love you. You just have to repent and embrace Christianity. And don't forget that that means the devil and everything that is other is bad and it is heinous and you want nothing to do with it. Um, and I think this, you know, is a continuation of um, an American tradition of um, paranoia um, and fear, you know, from the Salem witch trials to McCarthyism, um, you know, to a fear of Japan, like it's during World War II. It's, it's all of these things that feel so, um, so scary in this country. That's right. And we can't like, you can't underestimate uh, Christianity's stranglehold on politics during that time. And, and even now, like in the lecture that I'm giving on Sunday, uh, I talk a bunch about that. I just lost my train of thought. Um, stranglehold. Oh, yes. And so... It, 
when the church can't use sin and hell as a deterrent, as a method of social control, then you've got a real problem on your hands. So I also think that the satanic panic was kind of a backlash against that as a way to put fear back into people. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, when we all, it's, you know that thing when you've got like a lot of roommates and there's always that one weird roommate that you and your other roommates go like, that guy's so fucking weird. Right? Yeah. Okay. If you don't have one of those, that means you are the weird roommate. (laughs) So it is better to point and accuse rather than be like, oh God, is it me? I blame it on one of my cats. Totally. (laughs) Cats are dicks. So, yeah, like, so, so what are we even talking about anymore? We're talking about this movie that is situated right smack in that, that embraces that, that puts it front and center on a Jean-Luc Picard. Um, but uh, this is also a film that is very much steeped in the 80s, and a lot has changed in the, since the 80s, and so the film deals with that as well. Yeah, and um, I think what I wanted to kind of bring to this conversation, which, so I love this movie. But now I have a very complicated relationship with it since I went to sit down and start thinking and writing about this film. Um, So we're just all gonna be really open and really honest and it's gonna be really cool, it's gonna be great. Um, So what I actually did was, uh, I always forget that this film opens uh, with a placard or title card. Um, And every time I see it, it's like, oh, that. And I am fascinated by horror films that purport to be true, but are so clearly untrue. Um, You know, like you've got Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, and, uh, you know, the Blair Witch Project, that weird movie, The Fourth Kind. You guys remember that? Yeah. Um, But I I just think they're so interesting because they're so clearly not real, but they're going to try and make us think they're real. So this brought me back to something I studied when I was in grad school. And uh, it's by a German philosopher by the name of Walter Benjamin, uh, or as it would look to you and I, Walter Benjamin. (laughs) But unless you want to be one of those assholes who's like, Wagner's a Nazi, only to hear something like Wagner's a Nazi. You guys are going to want to say Walter Benjamin. Anyway, he was a Marxist philosopher, and he was working in Germany in the 30s. Uh, And he wrote this very influential essay uh, that I have to look at because I need to get the title right. Uh, The work of art in an age, or sorry, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. And this is written in 1935. So Benjamin's overall statement, and I kind of had to reteach myself this article for this lecture, so here we go, and thank you, gradesaver.com. So essentially, the more society's able to reproduce a work of art, say it's, you know, the Mona Lisa. Yes, you can go see the Mona Lisa in the Louvre, but you can also buy a coffee mug with the Mona Lisa printed on it, Um, to a film, which you you can view in many uh, iterations in different places, in your setting, with a crew, with however you want to do it. Um, With every step of removal from an original piece of art, it loses its aura, air quotes aura, because he uses this term a lot. Um, But I would read that as authenticity. So a pure authentic experience would be um, all of us going to the Louvre and us looking at the Mona Lisa. Every time that gets pulled a step away, if I see the Mona Lisa on a t-shirt, if I see it, it's removing it from the context that the artist was intending. So, um, you know, let's say for the, for the instance of this, Ty West had the idea. He wrote the script and he's going to edit the film, but it has to go through uh, director of photography. Uh, it has producers. It has actors. And all of these things aren't maybe quite his vision, but they're very close to it. And so the actual final work of art is kind of an amalgamation of a lot of people's different interpretations of the story, which I actually think makes a stronger work of art, but, you know, there we go. Um, So the notion that every time we remove a step away from this aura or a step away from the art, we put a barrier in between us and a true artistic experience. Um, What we do is the product loses its artistic value, but it gains a capitalist value. So it gains its value as a product to be consumed. Still kind of with me? Yeah, yeah, you guys, you guys get it. Um, and, and he didn't necessarily believe that this was super bad. He was a Marxist. He, he wanted the masses to experience art and to have access to it. But, you know, Germany, 1935, there's some shit going on. 
<laughs> and you have someone who is on this, you know, terrifying ascendance to power who is using art and film as propaganda to create fear, to create suspicion. So Benjamin was really, he was really concerned about this. And that's kind of where, so, so when we talk about uh, Benjamin's work, keep in mind that um, the era that it is coming out of. And what, and I think this use of propaganda is really interesting when we look at the House of the Devil because it is a fake story claiming to be true for the purposes of entertainment. That, that's not wrong. It's not horrible. We've all exaggerated stories. That's fine. Um, but in this film, it is de depicting the fear of, sat of, of satanic panic as true. So it's not like, Ah, oh, those crazy conservatives were like fucking crazy. It's like, nope, this nice girl who was just trying to do something good and make a life for herself is fallen prey to this horrific devil cult. And I think, you know, this mask of a period piece that Ty West really likes to put on it, like, sure, fair enough. But it's an effort to create an aura or an air of authenticity, which isn't true. And it doesn't necessarily need to be there. And one of the things I think I like the most about House of the Devil is if you could change certain elements and you remove some of the 1980s filter off of it, for me, it still works as a film. The, the gimmick of the 1980s is kind of fun and it's cute and it doesn't muddy the waters too much for me. But when I look and I analyze this film, it's something I can't get away from. Are you going to take a breath? We're <laughs> <laughs> just going to chug your wine? You know, I think it's because when we're sitting in the, in the, the podcast studio, like, we'll make eye contact every so often, and I'll be like, I want to say something, and she'll be like, just a sec, okay, go ahead. And so, yeah, I couldn't, couldn't break through that. No, 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 but I know, but then you applied it and all that. I want to say something about Benjamin, if that's okay. Uh, he's kind of a bad bitch. He killed himself in Spain uh, when it looked like he wasn't going to get away from the Nazis, which is kind of sweet. And he had, like, he had a manuscript. He had a manuscript in a suitcase that he sent off. So, like, this guy was a journalist. He, was, he started out as a real idealist, and then, you know, the man kind of beat him down. The whole Nazism thing is kind of a buzzkill. But, uh, but he definitely believed very strongly in the purity of art and of journalism and of truth and so he was kind of shitting on film from the very start for the reasons that Alex was just explaining. So when we're talking about House of the Devil, not only are we talking about, you know, the difficulties inherent in losing the aura just by virtue of having a crew and having an advertising and like all the things that go into making a film, but, um, um, shit. Were you going to take a breath? Ah, I knew you were going to do that. Anyway, he didn't live in a time where he could have seen everything turn on its head the way it did. Like, the new digital media is crazy. We're talking about internet hackers infiltrating the presidential election. The president himself is a fucking troll on Twitter. Like, he would have just lost his the mind. The president has no aura. <laughs> but, like, what is an aura now, you know? Like, um, how many of you have seen Assassination Nation? Ah, oh, that's not enough, guys, come on! Uh, I love this movie, and I wrote a feature on it in the last issue. And, and the reason I bring it up is because I got a really cool interview out of the director. And, uh, and I was saying, you know, this film is really hard to categorize. It doesn't really have a genre. And he said, well, what is the genre of a Twitter feed? When you go through your Twitter feed, you're going to see, you know, like a funny gif, a uh, cat knocking over a little kid, a really terrifying news source, maybe a dick pic. Like, that has no genre, but that in itself is an emergent genre. It's just the onslaught of information that we have. Um, and so I guess I'm trying to apply that <laughs> to something that uh, Benjamin wrote a gazillion years ago. Um, what I like about him is that he's not super alarmist about new technical media. He's, there's meaning to be made there. And so when we're talking about House of the Devil, not only are we reproducing and reproducing, we're reproducing a time in the past. So it's kind of a weird twist on nostalgia. And without explicitly stating it, it's reproducing a conservative value. It's reproducing a conservative ideal, which they were trying to instill fear of in their audience. And again, I still really love this movie, but it's like it's selling satanic panic back to a horror audience. And we tend to be the audience that is probably like some of the most discerning, some of the most like, um, I don't know, I think we're, we're some of the smartest and, and wokest. Um, <laughs> But no, it, it's actually, it feels very, like, once I started to unpack that, I was like, oh, I don't like it, I don't like it. It's weird to have it look back and adopt that perspective. Yeah. I was thinking of that this morning, because we went to that, uh, we went to that witch's museum. 
with, with the little like exhibits all, all around 20. you in a room. And I was like, imagine this story was telling us that witches were bad and these girls were hysterical and it was all Tichiba's fault. I mean, to be completely honest, <laughs> that presentation wasn't far from that. It's kind of really glorifying the brave men involved a little more than I'd like, but, uh, <laughs> but I got shades of that. Yeah, and so I think this is, again, what we talk about, about loving media and loving the art and the film that we do, but always having that critical eye towards it. And I think uh, when I first saw it, I have such an emotional response to it. Um, you know, I, I really loved Jocelyn Donahue as Samantha. Um, you know, you, it's not every day you get to see Academy Award nominee Greta Gerwig's face blown off. Um, <laughs> you know, so you have that. Uh, A.J. Bowen looking like a fucking creep. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's also a lot of other kind of, again, as Andrea was doing the synopsis, it totally makes sense, but there is um, this kind of, uh, these little like breadcrumbs throughout the film where these like little microscopic plot points become really big. And when you start piecing them together, like one of the things that really came to the forefront for me um, was the notion of motherhood and pregnancy in this film. And once I kind of started following that thread, it, it feels like it's, it's actually screaming at me by the end of it. So um, you have a few interesting mother figures in this film. You have the uh, landlady at the beginning, uh, played by Dee Wallace, who is uh, really nice. And yes, she's shown the apartment to another girl, but gosh darn it, doesn't Samantha just remind her of her daughter? Um, and then, of course, you have the witch demon figure who's up in the attic who is um, credited as mother and of course is Almond's mother and you know she's this kind of sinister overlording figure that I actually really love the creature design in this film it's it feels very fresh and very um, different from anything else I've seen and um, yeah it, it feels like mothers are something that is kind of not present in your life, but is such a controlling force. There's always this kind of eye over you, and yes, they can give you a home, yes, they can give you money, but there's something else at play, um, you know. Oh yeah, and that totally plays into satanic panic, like we were saying, that, that mothers and women were largely, I mean, they're blamed for everything all the fucking time, let's be honest, but, uh, but at that point in time, it was, you know, like, uh, uh, for example, Michelle Remembers, you guys have heard of that, right? So that was from 1980, which is Michelle Smith's memoir of having satanic ritual abuse happen to her, these memories that were drawn out of her so conveniently by this uh, Dr. Lawrence Pazder, who, uh, who it was accepted as clinical fact that although retrospect reveals that cultural assimilation, uh, cultural assumptions of the 90s are, uh, God, cultural assumptions of the 70s are present throughout. It's a pretty sexist, misogynist text. Women are to blame throughout. And so, so yeah, in this film, I, I definitely think that, you know, Samantha could not have been a guy. There is not that fear and anxiety about vulnerability of a young man trying to make it on his own. Well, yeah, and then, you know, you look at Samantha's unwilling role as the unwilling mother. Um, so again, you know, consider the time, the 1980s, where this film is set. As I mentioned, the moral majority uh, was kind of at the height of its power. It lost power very quickly. Uh, but they were really trying to repeal Roe v. Wade. And this is where you see a lot of the conservative politics, um, which we are now still grappling with coming of age. And, you know, Roe v. Wade is still like, hope you guys are all registered to vote in your midterms. Um, <laughs> Yes, yes, I'm seeing nodding, good. Um, but that's, that's a real fear, that's so fucked up. And, and this is a time where, um, you know, throughout the film it's kind of mentioned like uh, Megan, uh, who's played by Greta Gerwig, says to um, Samantha, like, you don't even really like kids. And yet the only way she can make money really quickly is to be a babysitter. Mm -hmm. And even when she finds out it's not actually a baby, but an elderly woman, it is woman as caretaker. And then in the final moments of the film, when you know she knows something is going on in her stomach, it's not good, the voices, nah, and Almond tells her it's too late. So she would rather take her own life than face whatever is gonna come to her. But that doesn't work. Her body has found a way to, because uh, you're not supposed to shoot yourself in the temple, it's supposed to be like, in the mouth, right? Is that right? That's what I heard. That's what Kurt did. Oh. R.I.P., you know. Too soon? <laughs> My fiance just has his head in his hands now. Oh. <laughs> He's not even looking at me. Sorry, Danny. <laughs> but I, no, anyway. So she, she thinks she's doing it right because she never the internet. And um, <laughs> we're going to talk about that in a minute. 
<laughs> and anyway, so, but it doesn't do it. It doesn't end it. Her body is still somehow the property of something else. Um, and whether it be a state be, now because she's in a hospital and like the nurse is like, and you'll be okay too. Like, uh, it's not cool. I really wanted to find that poetic and powerful and heroic, but I, I think my biggest problem with this film is that I have a really hard time getting to know Samantha. Uh, a lot of those breadcrumbs that you mentioned didn't really come together for me. Like we, we see her, she's on a quest for kind of extra independence. She is out living on her own in a dorm and her roommate is a slut who's kind of messy. Like Oh, they call her a slut in the commentary. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, the commentary is garbage. Yeah, don't listen to, the, yeah, the, special features are shit. <laughs> Anyway, we've got this, she's fighting for independence, she's going to do this, and then when she's having that conversation with Allman, where he's like, uh, actually, I know I've been really sketchy, but I'm just about to sketch you even further, uh, it's to look after my old mom, and I'll pay you double, and she's like, eh, triple. You know, she works him, so she's so strong, she's so independent, and she fights them off, and she's killing people only to blow her own head off, because some creepy robed guy tells her it's too late. I don't get it. I want a movie about Megan. Well, it'd be a short movie. Aww. Someone else blew her head off. I don't know. <laughs> oh, but you did it right. Sorry. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I think, and I think for me, it's just, uh, I don't know if it's Samantha reminds me a bit of myself or something I would do in those situations, and I just dug her, and I think I just kind of related to it maybe a bit more than you did. Um, Definitely. Yeah. hundred per. Um, Jocelyn Donahue's so cute. She is super cute. I really like her. Yeah. Bless her heart. One funny thing about the commentary was she was just like, oh, you know, I liked this and I liked that, but those high-waisted jeans, oh, God, never wearing those again. I was like, whoa, you're going to love the 2010s. So yeah, let's let's talk a little bit more about Samantha right now, and um, some of what I would say, again, in this kind of s- narratively small film, what are some of the most iconic moments um, of it? And I think uh, kind of the big one that I would, maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong, uh, but her dance, a little she puts on the Walkman. One thing leads to another. Um, and uh, it's it's this moment of you're kind of about. Uh, not quite two-thirds of the way through the film, and you just know something's wrong with this house. She may even know there's something really wrong with this house, but you know what? She can't leave. She can't find Megan. So what's she going to do? She's going to listen to the fix. It's going to be good. And I find that so interesting because, uh, so I was born in 1985, and as soon as I could, I had a Walkman probably a little bit before I was 10. And that was, was such yellow, just like yeah. yours too. Yeah. They were and, all yellow, I think. <laughs> yeah. And and it was such a powerful moment because it was a method of escape. And, um, you know, Time Magazine called the 1980s the decade of the Walkman. Um, and it was this notion of privatized leisure. You could have your own experience in a room full of peep- people. Like, someone could be listening to their headphones right now. Get the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> And, um, but you can have these personal experiences. And now, like, I remember one day, a few months ago, I was going to work and I could not find my headphones. I almost lost my shit. Just blew my head off. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to stop. I am going to stop with that. But it, like when we were talking about that earlier today, I was, I was so compelled by that observation. And I wish, I wish it had occurred to me sooner so I could have done more research on it, is how having headphones on gives you space and gives you privacy and gives you agency. You're listening to your own tune. It's yours. It, it, it gives you, I don't know, space. I don't know how else to put it. And I feel like that space is often contested among young women, even today. If you are listening to your headphones on the bus, some guy still wants to come up and talk to you and you're like, no. Not allowed. I have my headphones on. This is like a barrier, or at least it should be. Well, I remember I was in high school, and it was probably like grade 11, so I don't know, like 2002 or something, and a teacher in like a media studies class talking about how headphones are just ruining a generation of conversation. And I was like, I don't want to fucking talk to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and like I, my parents would always worry that like, oh, you're listening to your headphones on the way home. Like you have no peripheral knowledge if somebody's following you and some shit. It's like, no, you're right. I should be terrified walking down the street. I should be afraid and in total silence rather than maybe enjoying my favorite song. 
Yeah. And so I, anyway, it's this notion that within this larger scope of the film, there is a kind of political statement in having a Walkman. And it is something small. And I think it's a, a light moment for an audience. We kind of enjoy it. We get to see Samantha lose herself a little bit in it. But yet the house finds a way to kind of exist around her. It, she bumps into, into the vase and it breaks. And oh, God, she's take it off. And that's when shit starts going really bad. Really, really bad. And I, I think it's a really... Um, actually, like that scene if you like this film, could have really not worked. But for me, it actually feels very endearing and very sweet. And, um, and it's that power of not only does Samantha have this agency that she doesn't have throughout the rest of the film, because she has agency over the narrative. She is no longer in the house of the devil. She is in the house of the fix. It is fine until it's not. Um, another thing I kind of wanted to mention again about this notion of uh, rejection of communal community, however you want to call it, is uh, the pizza delivery um, and, and, and in food service of general during this time. So as of about the 1960s, uh, the, the increased use of personalized cars uh, made food delivery a lot easier. It was um, easy to get. It was getting easier and easier to order. There were more restaurants offering it. There were chains that were solely offering it. So it's, you know, and that's what you think about. When I was a babysitter, it was like, yeah, order this pizza, or there's pizza in the fridge, or there's money for pizza, 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 pizza. Um, and so the fact that that could be tainted and that they thought that far ahead to, like, get their creepy son to uh, poison her pizza. And was that the only poisoned pizza? Because pizza was tasting weird all day. Like, again, like, see, like, these are the breadcrumbs that I'm talking about that I want to make sense of that. But the fact that I can't just pisses me off because I can make sense of anything. Really? Except that. Okay. Um, so yeah, I like this notion that it's, again, one thing that she's kind of driven herself inside of. She is removing herself from the space where she could be safe, where she could be with Megan, where she could be whatever. But she makes this stand that she's going to go make her money, she's going to move into her house, and her life will get significantly better. And every step she does towards that, oh shit, it just doesn't work out because her luck is shit, or whatever it is. And you know, not only was she the second choice for the apartment at the beginning, but she's also the second choice for the babysitter because the first girl flaked. Um, so she has this kind of horrifying, faded luck of she is almost destined to do this. And it's like, she tried to kill herself. That didn't fucking work. So, you know, I think there's this kind of undercurrent of, of fate and of her um, non-religion almost... Uh, making her open or vulnerable to it. Maybe. I don't look at me. I didn't get any sense of religion, not religion, politics, well, I think feelings. I, yeah, I don't know. To give. Well, like, <laughs> 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 um, and I think... <laughs> And also during this time again, 1980s, uh, let's remember the Cold War is about to die out at the beginning of the 90s. Um, and what you have is there was a real pride about American individualism. You could make yourself. It was something that you could do if you worked hard, if you played hard. We've talked about this before. We've even talked about it on this stage with American Psycho. You can create your own destiny, but Samantha can't. Um, and I think one of the things that... Um, this film has a really interesting uh, kind of notion of is as the Cold War was dying out, it was still really uh, suspect to be part of a community, to be part of a communal experience because what do those things go along with? Communism. I thought you were going to say Satan. <laughs> well, you know, Putin. Um, and uh, <laughs> just making all the controversial oh, statements. Yeah, we're not, not getting, getting back, back into Canada. In. No. <laughs> But no, I think there's a notion that um, Samantha's kind of, um, you know, idealism and this fight against the Cold War and all this stuff that was maybe a bit more mainstream America was actually kind of wrong. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't normal because that's how she fell into the church. That's how she fell into the clutches of Satan. And for me, when I think about um, the devil in film, the devil shows up with a really specific purpose. Uh, I think demons arrive with a bit of chaos. Like I always think of the exorcist when uh, uh, Father Marin says to Karis, like I think this demon wants us to despair. It wants us to lose faith. It, it, it's just, it's kind of chaotic. Um, whereas the devil shows up and it's just like, 
it's souls to take, it's deals to make, it's, you know, like in The Witch or something like that. These are like very, kind of very specific transactions to garner souls, to garner favor. And um, yeah, so I think The House of the Devil is a very interesting title over House of Demons or something. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, yeah, sorry, I was just, I was kind of thinking about, um, I read it as just, she is a woman trying to be independent and is punished, because I am a horror fan, and that is kind of the baseline that runs through the genre in the 80s, 90s, and pretty much forever, you know? Um, yeah, no, I, I, I definitely can't argue that she didn't do anything right and gets punished eventually. But her punishment is just, I mean, it's in the fucking title, guys. Like the first three quarters when we're like, oh, I hope this isn't going to happen. I hope this isn't going to happen. Ah, it happened. Well, I, I have a question. What if the house of the devil is actually the house she sees at the beginning of the film at the apartment because the real devil is capitalism? <laughs> I, know. I think you I just, know. somewhere, Ty West has the biggest raging boner. <laughs> I'm a fucking genius, yeah! Crushes uh. a beer can on his head. <laughs> He's out singing, like, karaoke with Joe Swambert. <laughs> Remember when we used to make movies? No. So let's talk about once upon a time, the very first time I had like my own phone, my own cell phone, that Nokia piece of shit that we all had, my voicemail was totally, hello? Ah, just kidding, you piece of shit. I'm not there. I did that. And it drove people insane. All of my voicemail was always like, fuck you. I fell for it again. I'm in the house of the devil and I'm about to get killed. Thanks a lot. Is that why you don't have any friends before me? <laughs> um, do you want to go here? Yeah, well, no, I thought we were going here because... Um, oh. Because uh, <laughs> the only maybe interesting nugget that I got out of the commentary specials features. What? Come on, you admitted no, that I, it was I garbage. I thought we were the movie, but no. Somebody was like, oh, it's in the 80s, so there's no cell phone, so there's a real like crisis in communication. And I'm like, do you look back on the past at things that aren't invented yet and call that a crisis and not being invented yet? I just hated it when penicillin wasn't invented. <laughs> it's a crisis in medicine. Um... Okay, well, is that all you wanted to say about technology? That's all I wanted to say about it. But the word is here, so. Um, can, you, can you vamp and I'm going to pour more wine? Yeah, can I vamp? What like make talk. Oh, I've never heard it. <laughs> never heard it put that way before. I'm learning words left, right, and center. What else did I hear? Nosh today? Yeah. What the fuck does that mean? Can you talk about the movie? Oh. Uh, <laughs> you want me to? I feel like you don't like when I talk about the movie. Um, <laughs> I love it when you talk about the movie. No. Because it's okay to disagree about films. You can still be friends. And like I said, I am enjoying talking. <laughs> no, they can't see that in the recording. Alex. Sorry, guys. It's a lot of visual humor. <laughs> she just grabbed me. Uh, oh, wow. You really filled that up. Okay. So the next thing we wanted to talk about, this was your talking point, but I'll introduce it if you want, is the difference between... Okay, no, this harkens back to uh, the crisis in communication. Is this film a period piece? Is it an homage? Is it uh, fetishizing the past? So let's talk about the difference between these things. Uh, so a period piece, uh, which is a very kind of common form of film, and one that Ty West insists this film is. Um, so a period piece is a kind of general uh, tent tented definition, <laughs> is um, a work of art set in or reminiscent of another time. Um, an homage is something that shows respect or high regard for something. And a fetishization is to be excessively or irrationally devoted to. Okay. Here's why I don't think the House of the Devil is a period piece. Let's say we go watch a movie about slavery. I don't think any one of that movie is like, you know what, those white people had a point. It's like, oh no, slavery's bad. It is a critical eye, usually on the past, unless it's something really cool, like... I don't know, something nice that happened in history. Um, 
And so I feel like because of this film kind of um, intentionally or unintentionally absorbing these conservative politics, it's actually far more towards like a fetishization or an homage. It's not something that looks back and says like, okay, here's maybe something weird that happened one night, but actually there is a lot of stuff that disproved things that happened. And there are a lot of people wrongly persecuted and put in jail and like really, really bad accusations. Um, that we're flying around and you know I, I so I don't think we can qualify this as a period piece because there is no you know like it's the saying hindsight is twenty twenty. there is no hindsight in this film and uh, in one of the interviews I read with Ty West he was talking about how his mother um, he's a bit older than us um, it's probably late late thirties now, and uh, he he was talking about how his mother was really scared every time he went to the park because she believed in satanic panic and that some kind of child cult was going to like grab him and take him away. Right. Which yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Maybe after this film they could have. I absolutely agree with you like in in your typography I don't think it's a I don't think it's a period piece because exactly like you said it doesn't take advantage of the benefit of retrospect. Uh, which is fine. Uh, and with regard to the term homage, is it glorifying that? Like, it is so heavily steeped in 80s, but it's also mumblecore, so it's steeped in realism. However, it's it's in the reception that I find the homage really comes in, because this was the first film to really ape on the 80s, and it is humongous now to the point that we're kind of, like, overloaded on it, right? And it, people who are writing on this film are saying this was a simpler time, this was a better time, this was a time where I was conceived, ergo it is the greatest time in history. That's the kind of stuff that, that, that I feel came out in the wake of this film, but isn't implicitly contained in it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think, um, I think, you know, looking at this film, again, I stand this film. I do really love it. I will probably watch it in a couple years and be like, yeah, still really love it. Um, I think for me where this ends I may. Yeah, what, 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 where's Kevin? He's, he's not giving us our five minute, is he there? How are we doing for time, bud? <laughs> You're just going to let us go and go until this oh, big perfect. gulp of wine is done, isn't it? It's a big gulp. It's a big um, gulp. Okay, so we're good. Um, no, so for me, the House of the Devil is a purely Reagan-era nightmare brought to life with um, some really good filmmaking techniques. Uh, it's a bit hipstery. There's some really good performances, a lot of tongue-in-cheek stuff that is designed to kind of lull us into a sense of accepting it. And in a lot of senses, it's really entertaining. It really freaked me out the first time I saw it. And that's what we want out of these movies. And that's great. And we should, if, if you had that experience, you know, keep having it with this film. But I think... And, and like I hopefully will, but understanding that the politics of this film are so murky, so murky, and it makes me feel weird. That's that's where I get and scene. <laughs> we all feel really weird about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've said everything <laughs> I you, have to you, say. You don't have any final thoughts on this? <laughs> Make it you sound like Jerry Springer. <laughs> Be good to each other and don't sacrifice each other to the devil. Uh, no, I don't. I mean, I, I've said several times that, uh, that, yeah, I've enjoyed unpacking it more than I enjoyed watching it. I'm, I'm happy it exists. You know, there's a lot of great stuff that came out of this, uh, this 80s revival. Um, I am relating a lot more strongly to stuff like Stranger Things and Summer of 84 than I am something like House of the Devil. Maybe that's just where I was at in the 80s or something like that. But, um, but yeah, it, I don't think we had done like a... Uh, I don't think we've tackled in the podcast a modern movie that situates itself so staunchly and specifically in the past. Yeah, almost stubbornly. Yes. Um, but I think if you were to remove that essence of the 80s and, and just make a straight film about a, a girl falling into this you know, weird job and, and then she gets you know, uh, taken by a devil cult... Um, you know, it might not be as politically charged as, as it is by setting it in the 80s for us. No, not if Ty uh, West made it. <laughs> Do you think Ty's short for something? Uh, Ted. Ted. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like tits. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of our thoughts on The House of the Devil. Yeah. Um, 
we hope you enjoyed this. Uh, we do have a couple thank yous. Um, yes. We really, really want to thank Kevin Lynch. Uh, we want to thank everyone who's uh, working Salem Horror Fest and all of the volunteers, um, Cinema Salem, um, and of course, Salem Horror Fest, and all of you guys. Mm-hmm. All of you. Special Thanks. shout out to Aaron from the bathroom. Um, there's no toilet paper in my stall, and I thought I was alone, and I was getting ready to text Alex, like, you got to come in and help me out, but... One of you was in there. Thank you. <laughs> We're having a great time in Salem. We love that we came back. And to do this a second time, this is the only, the only place we do this. We're not doing... We've had offers to do it other places, but... Big uh, offers. Big. <laughs> <laughs> no, we have had offers. I'm not joking about that. But we like doing it here, and we like giving you guys a reason to come out. It's a great fest. It's a great town, and we're having a great time. We are going to go out afterwards. If you want to come hang out with us, we are going to a bar called... Opus La- Underground? Yay. Opus Underground! Yay! Uh-huh. Yes. We're um, gonna... So we're going to go there after if you guys want to come hang out, have a beer. We're also just going to be mingling and getting stuff done. Um, tomorrow, if you guys are around, I will be doing uh, a lecture on 90s female killers and cinema. Some order of those words. I will be talking about that somehow tomorrow at 4 p.m. <laughs> at uh, the Peabody Essex Museum. Yes, and on Sunday, I'm doing a lecture of hell and depictions of hell in cinema. And that's also at 4 p.m.? Yes. Uh, And there's a lot of other great programming on throughout the weekend, so please check that out. Um, You know, I'm sure you're all subscribed on iTunes. Thank you so Uh, much for coming. We are going to publish, this is our, I've already said, it's our October episode, so it's going to be out soon. And uh, we are going to record an intro and an outro when we're back in Toronto, whereupon we will let you know what the next episode is. Um, But before we say goodbye, do you guys want to do a selfie with us? (gasps) Ah, Yeah! Why did I do this last time? We sat here and I had it going here. Yeah. See, I went on Amazon and I I invested in some toys. (laughs) I got this little tripod thing. I got this remote thing. She she really upgraded. It's like 10 bucks, and it only took a month to get here. Oh, God, all I can see is the big gulps. (laughs) These are huge. Is this how we did it? I think I just held it up. up. Should I hold it? Yeah, hold it. My tripod. (laughs) Uh, Have any of you guys seen the new Halloween film? Oh, I was going to mention something about it. Something really flattering. No, there's a, no, there's a part where the pod, some people are podcasters and they have a lot of money. It's not true. <laughs> okay. Everyone's, stand up, stand up. Stand up. Okay. <laughs> Ready? Yeah. Say faculty. 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 Hey, that's not a mic. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Thank you so much, Cinema Salon. We'll see you around. Good night. Well, that was our live episode from Salem Horror Fest in Salem, Massachusetts. And we're just going to record a quick little outro because wouldn't you know it, we forgot to say our thing. Office hours are closed. But we're not going to say that yet. No, we're not going to say that. We're not going to say that yet. We're not going to say goodbye quite yet because we really, really just want to say once again, thank you to Salem Horror Fest. Thank you to Kevin Lynch. Thank you to all the people who came and worked and uh, came to the live show. That was incredible. Uh, And you were all real people. We didn't have to Photoshop you. No, that's right. um, At all. You were wonderful people. (laughs) And uh, it was wonderful to, to take our customary selfie at the end of our podcast and have such a lovely memento of everybody who came out. And people came from far and wide this year, just like last year. But it was great to meet you all. And yeah, thank you for coming up and saying hello to us. I actually ran into a famous tattoo artist in the streets of Salem when we were down there. I ran into Kelly Doty and uh, and my partner Dustin was just like, do you want to go take a picture? And I was like, so I know how it feels to not want to bother someone by telling them how much you love them. It's like ridiculous. But um, I really loved meeting each and every one of you who came up to us after the show, over the weekend, after one of our lectures. It's part of what makes doing the live appearance really special. So thank you for that. And we've already been seeing on social media that some of you weren't able to make it and uh, that you really, really want to. So we're going to give a pretty heavy-handed hint that 
we're pretty sure it's going to happen again next year. We're pretty sure. Yeah. So if you've been and you enjoyed yourself, if you want to come again, if you want to come for the first time, uh, start start putting those pennies to the side. That's right. And the fest is just getting bigger and better every year thanks to the tireless efforts of Kevin Lynch and his amazing team. I'm talking about you, Doug, Jessica, everybody who I've missed. I shouldn't have started naming names because now I'm necessarily fucked. This is just like the witch trials. God, um, but so that was October. That was our October episode. And it was so much fun. But we have something very, very special planned for November. That's right. A very oft requested episode, I think, and a pairing made straight in hell. And this is going to be your homework for next month, which we think is going to be pretty fun. In November, we are going to be talking about the original Stepford Wives. Maybe a little bit of a mention of a remake, because I'm fascinated by that. And Get Out. Desperate to talk about that. And we said we kind of weren't, but, uh, you know, I, I think the pairing of the two, they need to kind of live close to each other. And they do uh, in film uh, history and in film criticism. So what better time to start talking about them? And um, it's a conversation I'm really excited to have and, and to revisit these films. That's right. And like we said, we need to give the film a little bit of a chance to breathe. I feel like Get Out kind of came out amid this huge movement of elevated horror or prestige horror. And I'm really looking forward to talking about that and why that's happening right now. So until the next time Satanic Panic sweeps you off your feet, office hours are closed. Turn around Every now and then I get a little bit lonely and you're never coming around Turn around Every now and then I get a little bit tired of listening to the sound of my tears Turn around Every now and then I get a little bit nervous that the best of all the years have gone by Turn around Every now and then I get a little bit terrified and then I see the look in your eyes
only falling apart. 